Glad to be back to see everybody. It was actually great to come back. I, I, we came back in uh, last weekend, was able to be here for the service uh, last Sunday night. For those that weren't here, you missed an amazing, amazing service. Uh, we had seven different churches from all over uh, our community coming together in, in response to the, uh, the violence that we've seen uh, going on within our world today. And churches coming together, locking arms, standing with one another, praying for one another, and just showing our unity in Jesus Christ. And it was just a great opportunity. And as Krista said to me when I walked in the door, what a service to come back to. Uh, it was truly a picture of heaven. And we hope to continue dialogue, continue to pray for one another, because there's a lot going on in our world today that causes us a lot of fear and trepidation. And, and the, the real response to all of that, it's not more politics. Um, I mean, we can have protests, we can have all of these different things going on in our world, but the one and only solution we can truly have is, is God to intervene in our world today. And God will not intervene unless his people ask of him. Uh, God delights in us coming to Him and seeking Him in prayer and talking to Him and pouring out our hearts to Him. And I'm, I'm so excited just about this series uh, as we really talk about prayer. And, and you can ask someone how uh, their spiritual life is and ask them about prayer and everybody kind of gets antsy. Because almost everyone knows that their prayer life is not where it's supposed to be. Which is a shame. Because God has given us this amazing tool, this opportunity to speak to him, to talk to him. And many of us give a, uh, an acknowledgement, a verbal acknowledgement to the power of prayer, but yet we really show our actions, I mean, show our faith through our actions. Do we truly believe that God will work? And we're talking today about praying boldly. And I think of the t- term bold. I mean, bold is a, a term we have in our mind for p- people who stand up for something or, or ask something. And I, I, I think of boldness, and I, I think of a, a situation that I had when I was a, young, uh, when I was a youth pastor in Chicago. And uh, my daughter was just born. I'd just become a new dad. And, and I had uh, this one student. His name was Philip. Philip was uh, uh, about 13, 14 years old. Uh, he grew up in Chicago. He's Polish. He was always had a really huge sense of humor. And he came to me one morning, uh, actually one evening at our youth group, and he goes, hey, and, and I just got back after uh, having my daughter. You know, we had our daughter. And, and he comes up to me and he goes, can I date your daughter? And I was like, what do you mean date my daughter? She was just born. What are you, what's wrong with you? And he goes, I know. I've just seen the mother. I want to get in line. <laughs> So this kid said to me, I was like, you little, and he got away, he ran away laughing at me before I could get a hold of him. Uh, because he just, he was, I mean, he was bold, but foolish at the same time. And, and sometimes though, when we approach God, I mean, God wants us to be bold, to ask things of him. Do you know that? God wants us to ask of him. So often we think, oh, God doesn't want to be bothered by me. Or God won't hear me. But you know, God has attached himself to prayer. It's, it's his creation, not our own. And it's not just there for in case of emergencies. I mean, we think case of emergency, break glass. And, and it's like we don't want to break the glass because it's not an emergency. But we, we fail to understand that even our, uh, our biggest problems are small to God. See, we often think that, oh, it's not big enough for me to ask God about. Right? I don't have a big enough situation. It's just a small thing. It's compared to all the other things that are going on in the world today. It's not that big a deal. I don't want to bother God with that. But we fail to understand that that's, that's not how God works. I mean, from God's perspective, everything is small. 
for him. I mean, there's nothing that, that we struggle with. I mean, it might be large in our own minds and our own hearts, but to God, it's a very small thing. And, and God says, though, even then, on the small things, he goes, I want you to approach me, and I want you to come to me boldly. And we, we need to think about that. What does it mean to pray boldly before God? Uh, I think of Martin Luther, who is known as the founder of Protestantism, the first, in essence, protestant. He was protesting what he saw as the injustices with what was going on within Catholicism. And he, he was a person who was truly bold. Because boldness is not determined by what one says. It's what one says in the face of great difficulty and hostility. And he was extremely in, a, in an extreme hostile situation. He was speaking out against what was known as Christendom at the time. What was the Catholic Church? He was speaking out against the most powerful person in the entire world at the time, which was the Holy, I mean, uh, which was speaking of the Pope. And he noticed that these things were going on. And, and, and he wrote again, he, first he just wanted to reform uh, Catholicism. And he wrote them, and he put them on these things. He wrote 95 of them out and posted them at the door in, in Wittenberg, Germany, the castle there, so that people could dialogue about it. But s- soon it was translated into all these different languages, and it made its way to the Pope. And then the Pope was outraged, because basically he's questioning the Pope and questioning how things were done. And reality was he just wanted to reform it. And so the Pope ended up calling him in, and he was brought before a council, and they brought his works before him. And he knew that he could be killed. I mean, there was a death warrant on his head, and they said, will you recant of this? If you don't, we're going to kick you out of the church. You're going to lose your salvation. You're going to have all of this against you. But he said, my conscience is held captive to the word of God. Here I stand. He was bold. And that translate. I mean, that, that came out of his walk with God, that boldness. He, that boldness came because of his relationship with God. One person remarked after hearing him pray and confessing his sins, they pitied him. He went through all of his sins. He understood how he really was in the sight of God. And people would hear him pray and confessing his sins. They almost wanted to pat him on the back and go, it's okay, Martin. It's okay. And they, they pitied him. But then he turned to petition. And then he said, they said his request became so bold that they feared for him. And it came out of his walk with God, that boldness. And and God wants us to have that boldness, to ask of him. But how do we have that boldness? What does that look like in our marriages? What does that look like in our workplaces? What does that look like in our uh, our home life or in uh, our social life or at our schools? What does that look like on the mission field? What do all these things look like? How do we be bold before God? How do we do this? Now, in order for us to understand how we can be bold, we have to understand what it is, first of all, we've come from. We can't be bold unless we understand what it is that, uh, who we really are in the presence of God. Because, see, we have this dangerous idea that's come in. Michael Horton, a theologian, he said something very recently that really struck me. He said, we have forgotten that God, no, no most people don't think that God is dangerous. And that is a very dangerous idea. In other words, we've forgotten what it means to fear God. We think of God as our buddy, God as our friend, God as this uh, benevolent benefactor, and and we're ready to high-five God, but we forget that he is the sovereign king of the universe, the creator of everything that is, was, and ever will be. 
the psalmist captures kind of the idea of the power of God in Psalm 2, where it says, Why do the nations rage in the, or the people rage and the nations plot in vain against the Lord and against his Holy One? It says that God laughs. I mean, we get caught up, we're fearful of what's going on in our world today and how, seeing how people have turned and, and, and said that evil is good and, and good is evil and, and people have tried to shake their fists at God and sever any tie to God. But God laughs. God is all-powerful. As C.S. Lewis said, of, the Aslan, of Aslan, the Christ character in the Chronicles of Narnia, he's not a tame lion. Our God is not a tame God. So we have to understand, how do we be bold in his presence? What does that mean? Knowing that this creator God could destroy us in a moment. I mean, even now, he's long-suffering to us. He wants us to come to repentance I and mean, we have to recover this idea of who God is, this fear of the Lord. If we're ever to be bold, we, have to under, we can't just be bold on our own because we could be killed instantaneously. Instead, we need to recover what the Bible says of the, the fear of God and what it means to, under, to understand who he is. And how do we pray? Where does this boldness come from? It's not from ourselves. It's not from our own hubris. But it must be from the person and being of God himself, and that's through Jesus Christ. So today we're going to talk about what it means to pray. And and today I want to accomplish three things. I want to explore how we can pray, why does God even allow it, and clarify who we are praying to. Because when we talk about talking to God, everybody, everybody, especially in America, has this moralistic, therapeutic deity that's pro-America, and everybody cites them. Anytime there's a terrorist attack, everybody's praying and praying, and they have no fear of God before their eyes. But suddenly, everyone is praying to this being, and people don't want to hear about theology. It's just God, and everybody's got the sun, suddenly the same God. But the Bible differentiates very clearly to show us who the being of God really is. So I'm going to talk about who we are praying to. And I hope to examine our, even our basis for prayer. How can we, as sinful, finite beings, have access to this magnificent, everlasting, all-powerful, sovereign, omnipotent being? How can we even presume to speak to him? I mean, we've lost this idea of things. We've, in our democratic society, everyone is equal, and, and we all have access to whatever we want for the most part. But not so with God. We have to understand that. God is not a, a part of our democracy. He's the sovereign king. And we need to recover that idea and mindset. So let's, let's listen in as we jump within our text today to see what God has for us. But before that, let's pray to him asking him to speak to us today. Oh, sovereign king, great God, almighty father, king of the universe, blessed are you. And Lord, you, in a mystery that we can't begin to fathom or comprehend, have allowed us, your creation, your people, those who have been made within your image, yet who are sinful by our nature And by our choices, you allow us to have access to you, to ask of you. Lord, we come before you now asking that you, O sovereign God, speak to us today. That we don't go through the motions. 
that we don't just simply hear a message, but we encounter you, the living God. Lord, we ask you to meet with us by the power of your Spirit. Pry open the dry corridors of our heart to see and experience who you are, to know that you are God and that we are your people, the sheep of your pastor, and that you want to speak to us and meet with us today and glorify the name of your Son. So, Lord, speak to us. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look within our text. We're in Hebrews chapter 4. It's a fantastic text to really go through. Now, the author of Hebrews picks it up in verse 14. He says, since then, and when we ever see a since in Scripture, you've got to go back and understand what is he talking about? What was he talking about before that? He's developing a case, in essence, And if you go back to the the thought before that, which is the the paragraph immediately before, verse 11 through 13, he says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. He's speaking about the rest that God gives to us. But then he goes on and he says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And that's a a freaky thing that they're just hearing about. That every thought, every action of your life is naked before God. He knows every action. He knows every action of disobedience. He knows every evil thought. Everything that you have ever done, he does not forget. You can't just clear your history with God. He knows every part of it. He knows every hair on your head. And that's a scary thing to know that someone can know you so completely that you cannot hide, you cannot con, you cannot worm your way out, that every part of our heart will be exposed before God. All of the nations, every single person that has ever lived will be exposed before God. There will be no person's version of truth at the end of time. When we stand before God, it's not your perspective or my perspective, it's only God's perspective, and everyone will be judged accordingly to that. Now, that's a scary thing. It's a terrifying thing. This is something that in our society today, many of us don't want to hear about. We want to to talk about many other things rather than the judgment of God. But it's a very true thing that the Scripture talks about, that God is love, but He's also a God of wrath. And that now we are naked and exposed before him. And in essence, we are helpless. And he's saying here, I want us to recall or remember our condition before God. Before we can ever approach him in prayer and be bold before him, we have to recall and remember who we really are in God's sight without Jesus, first of all. Who are you without Jesus in the sight of God? We have to recall our our situation and who we are. See, in recent weeks, we've seen tragedy after tragedy. Shootings, bombings. I mean, lorries or trucks driven right in the midst of crowds in the middle of a celebration. We've seen, uh, I mean, not just shootings in our own country and in prejudices and injustices we have going on. And we have people preying on others. I mean, not just in our country, but over the world. People walking into train stations or in airports or into mosques even. People are blowing one another up. They're shooting one another. They're killing one another. And people's wondering, what's going on? And we have to understand, uh, what, I mean, not what's just going on in our world, 
but who God is. We have to go back to the person of God. Because I've seen people respond. I mean, especially on social media. People are always responding to one injustice or another, and they're voicing their opinions, and that's great. But we also see people, when a tragedy occurs, they're saying praying, and they always put the praying hands. Praying. You know what? I don't need to be on Facebook to tell you that I'm praying for something. I don't need to announce that to everybody, that I'm praying. Matter of fact, that's what I don't want to do. I don't want to tell everybody that. I want to pray. Just pray. I mean, what's the point of telling everybody that? Showing how spiritual we are? But even then, when I see people are praying, and it's like everyone's praying, and I look at people, and I'm like, you have no fear of God. You have no idea of God. You're an atheist at heart. Why are you talking about prayer? Suddenly, everybody just has this generic God that we're all, it's okay with our lives. Let me tell you something. That's not the God of the Bible. I mean, it's, it's I mean, a large amount of this, the stuff that we go on, it it simply reveals what it is we really believe. See, there's no tragedy, however great, that can determine who can pray or what prayers can be heard. We think that if someone can just be genuine enough, they'll be heard. No matter what the circumstance is, oh, we don't want to talk about theology because the circumstance is so suffering, how, I mean, so terrible, how can you talk about theology at this point in time? Now, it may not be the time to talk about it, but let me tell you something. Circumstance doesn't dictate theology. Circumstance reveals it. It reveals what it is we really believe. And as Christians, we have to go back to the person of Jesus Christ. It begins with God himself. And when a person says, I don't want to talk about theology, it's divisive. That itself is a theology. Everyone has a theology. It's your belief and your understanding about who God is. When you say you you don't want to talk about theology, that itself is a theology. It's meant to show us who God is. And God has revealed himself in the person of his son. I mean, we have succumbed to this notion that prayer need only be genuine and from the heart for it to be heard. And such thoughts may invoke sentimentality, but they do not move the heart of God. A large amount of suffering is simply because man has departed from God. And we need to call people not back to sound sound bite theology, but true abiding faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. See, that's what this is all about, is Jesus. We cannot pray boldly until we understand what it is we have come from and who we are in Christ now. Just a couple of years ago, theologian R.C. Sproul was asked the question, uh, since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? That's what he asked him. This is Sproul. Now, Sproul, uh, he, he responded. This is what he said. He, he, he rephrased the question, and he said, If God's punishment for Adam was so severe, this creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. After that, God said that the day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. Instead of dying that day, he lived another day, and he was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace. And had the consequences of the curse applied for quite some time, but the worst curse would come on the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman, and the punishment was too severe? Then he says this, what's wrong with you people? And everyone starts to laugh, and he stops, no, I'm serious. What's wrong with you people? That's what's wrong with the church today. He says, we don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. The question is, Why wasn't it infinitely more severe? 
If we have any understanding of our sin, any understanding of who God is, that is the real question, isn't it? He's calling us back. See, we have forgotten that we have sinned in the face of a holy God. We, in our time, have embraced all kinds of sin. We've allowed filth into our homes and minds through banal entertainment. We've celebrated what God calls wicked. We've become consumed with our vanity and our comfort. We have no thoughts of God, no desire for holiness, nor do we weep for the broken and the lost. See, looking at our text today, though, we see that God intervened. We see that we have a great high priest That's the good news. Look at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest. Now, we don't talk about priests much, especially within Protestantism. um, But especially, he's hearkening back to, in Judaism, they had to have a high priest who would be a representative of the people before God. He would offer sacrifices for himself and for the nation. And it would be two animals that would be sacrificed, one for his own sin and one for the sin of his family. And he would do this. He would go into the very presence of God and the most holy place. Only one person can do that. And that was the great high priest. And he had to wear certain garments with an ephod on him and a certain hat and a turban. And it said, holy unto the Lord. And he himself, the only one who was allowed to go into the presence of God, and that only one time per year, on what is known as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And he would offer a sacrifice for the sins of men. And it's saying that Christ is our high priest, and that he has torn the veil and enabled us now to have access to God. He is the one who is offering um, sacrifice himself for us. And he didn't need to sacrifice, have any sacrifice for his own sin because he had none. And he then has come before to represent us. See, God had to give us a high priest because we were disobedient to God. We ourselves sinned. We sinned, not against a brother, sister, or parent, but against God himself. We have been disobedient to God. Not only that, but we were dead in our sins. See, for us to understand our situation, before we can understand what it means to pray boldly, we have to understand what it is that God has done on our behalf. We were disobedient to God. We were dead in our sins. We had no means of responding to him without God's intervention. And we were doomed to destruction. The word of God reveals our conscience, reveals our sin. We are lost. And see, without understanding this, you can't understand the cross, by the way. We have a tendency to look at other people's sins and not our own. We have a tendency to measure ourselves against the worst people around us, rather than just looking at ourselves in the very presence of God. And when we look at ourselves in the presence of God, we find that we are short. And we can't truly understand what the cross means and what it has done for us if we don't understand how we were sinners and how God had to pour out his wrath on Jesus. As James White said, he said, if you don't see the wrath of God on the cross, then you're not really seeing the love of God either. You can't truly understand what it means to experience the love of God until you understand how he experienced the wrath of God on our behalf. And he did. God gave him his high priest to bear our sins, to take them upon himself. That he paid the price for our sins. See, that's what we do. We have to understand and recall our situation, but then we have to remember that God then provided a Savior for us. Remember our Savior. That's the second point we need to write down and understand. It's about Jesus. When we pray, we pray through Jesus' intercession for us. 
That when God sees you now, he doesn't see your acts of righteousness because you have none in his sight. No matter how good you think you are, your good will never outweigh your bad. Let me, let me, let me say that again. You, at the end of your life, your good will never outweigh your bad because it's never been dependent upon your good. It's only been dependent upon Jesus' good and him imputing, him giving his righteousness to you so that now when God sees you, he sees Jesus. That's who he sees, Jesus. So when we pray in Jesus' name, it's not just a magic tie at the end of a, of end of a prayer. It's saying that I, I am identifying with his name, his work, his blood covering me. I come to the, have presence in the very presence of God because of Jesus. I can have access to God now because of Jesus. We have to remember our Savior. If we're going to have any boldness, it can't become anything of our own. It can't be to this moral therapeutic deity. It has to come to the creator God, Father God, through his son, Jesus Christ. That is the basis of our prayer. He is our high priest. Now, we think of a priest sometimes. We don't think, that, we don't think of priests, as, um, and especially in our world today, as people that can really identify with us. But see, the cool thing about Jesus is that he is different. He, more than anyone else in the entire universe, can sympathize with our struggles. Sympathize with our struggles. Look at verse 13. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He isn't aloof to what we go through. In fact, he is the only one who truly sympathizes with our struggles. He came to walk a mile in our shoes, to experience what it was like to be human, to feel the power of living day by day, to experience hunger, pain, rejection, and even death. He experienced it all, and because of that, he can speak on our behalf. You know, we're in a political season right now, and there's a constant constant jockeying over who is the person who most of all can speak on our behalf, who understands our pain and what is important to us. We want those who can sympathize with our struggles And the reality is, is no person can sympathize with our struggles any more than the incarnate Son of God. Now, some might say to me, okay, he understands our struggles, but does he really understand what I've gone through? I mean, it says here that Jesus never sinned. So how can he truly understand what I go through if he's never sinned? How how can he get that? But I I would give another case. He alone understands the power of sin. Now, how do you say, you'd say, well, how, how is that so? How can God truly understand the power of his sin if he never sinned himself? I'd like to share a quote with you that really addresses this. Of course, I, you know me and C.S. Lewis, we're buddies. So he says this, and I find it profound. He says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. Well, let's just stop there for a moment. That itself will show how bad you really are, right? Have you ever tried to not do something? You find out how much you really want it. At that moment in time. It's like you try not to eat, try to fast for any period of time, and you'll find out how much you want food, how much you think about food, how much we even organize our lives around food, even when we give directions. Hey, go by the Domino's, turn left at the Domino's, go to Burger King, turn right there. We do it all by restaurants and food. We organize it by that. And, but try to stop eating, and you'll find out how much power food has over you find that over real quick. Now, Lewis says, no man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. 
This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it really is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived as a, shelter, a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, and this is where the whole argument fixes right here, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He's the only complete realist. Because he alone is the one who is able to resist it. And he had to be sinless, by the way. In order to be our Savior, he had to be sinless in the sight of God. But he alone understands the power of our sin. Jesus understood the power of our sin better than any of us ever have or ever will. And to top it off, he is the only one qualified to then give us salvation. Give us salvation. Look at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, the words hold fast our confession, the idea for holding fast, uh, the Greek word here is kriteo. It means not uh, to discard or let go, to keep carefully and faithfully. Now, what are we to keep faithfully and carefully? Our confession. And our confession is what? That Jesus Christ died for sinners that he was crucified, that he was buried, that he rose on the third day. That is our confession, that he rose, rose from the dead, literally rose from the dead for our justification. That is our confession. That's what it goes back to. And he's saying then, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, he alone is qualified, he has endured it, he has gone through it. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And then he goes on in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. In other words, now what he's saying is is that it's through Jesus Christ that we can pray boldly. It's through his name because Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, to the Father you will receive. And it's to the Father that as Christ has revealed himself. And how do we believe in the Father? By believing in the one whom he has sent, which is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And it's through him that we can have access to God. Now we can pray boldly. Because it's not about our deeds. It's not about whether or not our life has been lived good or bad. It's through him and him alone. Because we have been justified by faith in his name. Now, we are to run to God for support. He's saying, let us then approach God confidently. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Because of him, we can now approach God confidently. Now, the Greek word for confidence in this verse is Parisias, and can be translated free and fearless confidence, cheerful, courage, boldness, assurance. See, we need not fear anymore because we can now approach God through the name, blood, and finished work of Jesus Christ. Which is, by the way, 
why we pray to the Father through Jesus' name. It's not the tag at the end of prayer, but it's an appropriation of his meritorious work in the sight of God. He gives us the opportunity that we truly never had before, that we can now have a relationship with the God of the universe through Jesus. God desires that we speak to him and that we share our pains and our problems. So we can approach God with confidence. And when we do, when we know when we've messed up, I mean, we all know when we've messed up, right? When you've sinned in the face of God, you don't necessarily want to talk to God because you're ashamed. You're ashamed. You feel guilty. You're weighted down. You want to beat yourself up. And you say, I'm not worthy to be in God's presence. You know what? You're not. But because of Jesus, you are. And you can receive grace and mercy. You'll find that he's willing to receive you, to forgive you, to give you hope, to give you mercy. To, and mercy is, again, withholding what it is that you deserve. And he's wanting to be merciful to you. He wants to come to you. He, I mean, he wants you to come to him because of Jesus. Everything is okay if we have Jesus. Without Jesus, we've got no access. No matter how genuine our prayer, no matter what the circumstance is, it is, has to be through him and him alone. So we can come to approach God confidently and we can receive his mercy. And lastly, we can ask God freely. Ask God freely. Notice, you'll see that. Let us then with confidence, assurance, boldness, draw near to the throne of grace, God's unmerited favor because of Jesus, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help when? When? In your time of need. In your time of need. God knows your needs. God knows your struggles. And let me say right now, these are the needs we're talking about here. It might be, you might have a problem in your family. It could be an issue with your spouse. It could be an issue with your child. It could be a problem at your workplace. You could have a financial issue. You, you might have been a, a, the recipient of injustice. You might be dealing with prejudice. You, you might be experiencing just pain. It might be a health issue. That's your time of need. It's your circumstance. God, God wants you to take your circumstance to him and ask him to bear upon that circumstance. See, when we ask God, when we pray to God, we're asking him to, and it really is a rebellion against the status quo. It is asking God to invade our circumstance and change it the only way that he can. And in our world today, that's what we need. See, we've forgotten the fear of God. We don't ask God in our time of need. I'm amazed right now what's going on in California. I don't know if you've been paying attention there, what's been going on in California for the last five years. There's a massive drought going on. I mean of biblical proportions. Where people are trying to come up with all these ideas. People are leaving now because there's just not water there. I mean, they've taken all these restrictions that you can't do anymore. I mean, it's bad. I mean, all the reservoirs have dried up. And everyone's coming up with all these different ideas of what to do. And no one can figure out the reason why. And people think it's, well, it's man-made or what have you. Look, can we just stop for a moment and maybe propose something that is something that has been here since the beginning of time? Maybe God's behind it because people have turned their back on him. How about that? Because when I look at famines within Scripture, God's the one usually behind it trying to wake people up. And too often today, we don't want God. We'll remove him from all of the circumstances of our life. We'll try to put him in an illegal world, remove him from school, remove him from our workplace. We can talk about anything and everything, but we can't talk about God. And God is saying, you left me, I'm going to leave you. There's nothing that can be accomplished without the person of God bearing upon it. Our world has forgotten God. That's the problem that's happened. That is the issue that we face. 
And people want to have this president or that presidential candidate. Let me tell you again, and I can't say this more forcefully, no candidate is going to solve all of the problems of our humanity that are become more and more complex. Only God can. Last weekend, we had an opportunity to have all different churches here. And you know what? It wasn't politics that brought us together. It was one thing that brought us together, and that was Jesus. All different races, all different backgrounds, praying together to Jesus, asking God to speak to us, to work in our land, to heal us, to change us. It has to be through God, and we ask of him boldly. And you know how we ask boldly? Ask God something that is dear to his heart, and I guarantee he's going to answer it. Ask God something near to his heart, and I guarantee he'll answer it. See, often our prayer requests, though we give our needs, often they're selfish. They're not really our needs. They're more our wants. We pray with wrong motives. But when you pray within God's motive and you say, God, I want this, he's going to give it. You know what my prayer request has been here? I have several. I pray that God would, would show in this place that it would be a work that, uh, do a work that only he can do and only he can receive power and glory for. I'm asking him to make us a multi-ethnic church. I'm asking him to, break, to bring the broken here and that we would help take care of the broken. I'm asking him to, to transform our hearts and minds that we might worship him in spirit and in truth. I'm asking him that we can help reach the nations for the glory of his name, that we might be able to send workers into his harvest field. I think all of these requests are from the heart of God. You know, it's not about the size of the church. I was telling someone the other day, um, you know, we had, a, we had a huge growth. We talked about it last year uh, in, in our meeting. We had a 41% growth. That's great. It's neat. God's brought these people here. But you know what? I've seen churches grow and get big. That means nothing. The question is, are we building disciples? That's the real question. People get excited when there's a lot of people in the room. That's fine. It's good. It's a better problem to have than no people at all. But until people are truly seeking God, numbers mean zero. It means people getting on fire for God, being obedient to the commands of God, of husbands turning to their wives and their children, of wives turning to their, you know, taking care of and, and making change in their families, of loving God and ordering and teaching them the truths of who God is, living holy lives, thirsting for the things that God thirsts for, desire to reach out, the desire not to be comfortable, but to be Christ-like. Those are the things that God wants. And too often, we want to make our Christianity fit with the American dream. Matter of fact, we want to Christianize the American dream. Let me tell you, God does not have an American dream. I mean, American dream is not a bad thing. It's just bad if it takes place the place of God and his purposes. And for many of us, we want to put them together. No. We have to go back to what the word of God says, and we, then we pray boldly. And we, we pray on, through the name of Jesus Christ. We pray through his work and his finished work, and we pray according to the will of God, and we lay out a request. And no matter what your request is, lay it out. Even if you do have selfish motives, lay it out, and God will reveal that they're selfish to you. That's how often I feel. God rebukes me. God speaks to me in the middle of that. He shows me and, and, and shows me. He'll bring a verse to my, my mind that says, no, that's a wrong prayer, and pray this through the heart of God. And see, when we pray boldly, we see God work. The problem is, the reason that we don't see God work as much is because we don't pray as much. And I, and I mean that. There's been no genuine work of God that has ever happened through programming, through light shows, 
through, I mean, media is great, but I haven't seen, I haven't seen great works of God generated. Now, God might work through that, okay? I don't want to put that down. I'm just saying is we have to make sure that the means or the method does not become the message. The message is Jesus Christ and him crucified. He, was, he died on our behalf, was buried, and he rose again. That's the message. It's not five great things for, you know, God has a great plan for your life. That's not it. I mean, God does have a plan for your life, yes. But we need to go back to what the word of God says. And you know what? That doesn't, and, and, and God wants us to reach out to those that are broken and beaten, and he wants us to pray. Now, here's a question I have for you. Are you praying? You, you, you alone can answer this question. Are you truly praying and communing with God? Are you getting alone with God? I'm not just talking about before meals. Are you getting on your knees and are you pouring out your heart before God? Are you laying out the pains and struggles within your heart? God wants you to come to him with what is in you, not what should be in you. And he can answer those things. And you will find yourself changed because what happens is is you're dragging your person into the presence of God and then he begins to conform you more to the image of God. And he'll start changing your soul from the inside out. Are you praying? Are we praying? It, begins, it doesn't just begin in the church. It begins in your heart. So I'm challenging, uh, and, I, and I don't mean this. I'm challenging, I mean, I'm, I don't mean just to say this, just to say it. I'm challenging each of us, not just to spend time, to have an intimate communion. Don't look at it as spending time with God because now you're looking at it as a commodity. Look at it as communing with the Almighty. Change your perspective. And then ask God to change you. And when you pray, think of these things. I mean, what do you think about when you pray? I think about the person of God. I think about the purposes of God. I think about the pains and struggles and people in my life and I, and I try to bring them before him, asking him to invade him to transform, him to break hearts and minds, because ultimately he's the only one who can do it. And if we want to see a great movement of God happen here, it has to be, that has to be where we begin, humbling ourselves before God, repenting of our sins, and showing the reality of our faith in God by our life and seeking the person of God in prayer through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. That's it. Simply put, be bold. Ask God to do a work in your life, and he'll do it. Ask God to do great things or his name will receive glory. He likes those prayers. God likes things where he's going to be made known. Not us being made known. He's made known, and he'll do it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you right now. according to your word, as your children. As those who have trusted in what Jesus Christ has done on the cross on our behalf. Lord, we come to you in the name, the work, and by the blood of Jesus the Christ, the one true Son of God, whom you have sent to be a propitiation for us, to atone for our sins, 
knowing that the veil now has been torn through him and that we can have access to you, almighty God. And Lord, we pray that you bring heaven to bear upon this room right now, that you fill it with your angels, that you speak to us by the power of your spirit. Bring our sin to the surface that we might receive forgiveness and mercy because you are our great high priest. And, O Lord, our God, we come before you now asking, asking not of our own will but of yours to work in our lives. Lord, I do pray for those marriages that are struggling, that are limping along, that are hanging by a thread. And I ask, Lord, that you show your power, that you break the hearts of the people, of that husband and wife, that you reconcile them. Lord, I pray the same in those families that have been torn asunder by sin, that you might reconcile the parents to their children and the children to their parents. And Lord, I pray for those that are facing a great financial shortfall because of either circumstance or poor decisions. And Lord, we know that we can receive grace and mercy. And right now we pray for mercy and provision for them. And Lord, for those that are just experiencing the ravages of their sin and they know the guilt that they feel within them because of the sins that they have done, Lord, I pray that they might find forgiveness and freedom in your sight right now. And Lord, for those that are holding on to their sin, that are clinging to it and won't let go, I pray you show yourself to be the merciful, loving God who will receive them. Lord, let them, let them see what, what they're holding on to is so less than what, they, what it is that they can receive, and that is you. Lord, bring, about, bring your love to bear upon them so greatly that they cannot hold on to their sin any longer. They must confess it, let it go, and embrace the cross. And Lord, we do pray that you do a work here. And Lord, we don't know exactly what it is that you want to do, but we do know, Lord, that what it is that you delight in you delight in people coming together to worship your name in spirit and in truth. That you desire to people from all nations, all backgrounds, all cultures, all experiences to come together and lock arms, being united in and through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you continue to do a work within us. That you bring those who have been uh, found themselves shipwrecked on the shores of life as they've continued on in their sin. And Lord, that you bring them here, that they might see and know who you are. We pray that you bring the broken, that you bring those who are the, the hungry, the thirsty. And Lord, help us to see with eyes of faith those who are our brothers and sisters in the world that are suffering. May we stand in the gap on their behalf. May we stand against injustice. May we take stock of our own lives. May you remove our prejudices from us. May you truly help us to see and understand what it is that our brothers and sisters are going through. And Lord, we pray that you do a great work in here. Show us how we can help those within our community, those who are broken, those who are going through a very hard time, those who are lost. Lord, help us to show the light and life of Jesus Christ to them. And Lord, bring them and help, help us to go out to them. Help us to reach out, to go beyond ourselves. Forgive us for our comforts, for delighting too much in our comforts than we do in the Christ. Forgive us for our hypocrisy for playing around with the things of this world rather than seeking holiness. 
Lord, please speak to us as a church. Show yourself to be God in our midst. And do a work that only you can do and only you can receive glory for. And Lord, we ask this not in our name, but in the name, the matchless name, the work and the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, we ask this. Amen.